everyone. Easier to put yeah. it in the book. Uh, he just he just uh, accidentally paid twice in the self service line, and uh, and he, I said to him, "What are you going to do?" And he said, "Well, I'm just going to walk out of the store because I'd rather have 15 minutes than than the 16 dollars that uh, they charged me twice for." Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that kind of thing happens. At least it happens to me all the time. And I and I always think of that story. Yeah, how do I do? I want to spend an hour trying to wrangle out another sixteen dollars. Right. You know, of my time. I did. No, I don't. Um, you know, it's it's the cost of living, the cost of doing business. I guess. But right. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, so, uh, do you keep? In, are you in contact with his wife or? Yeah, well, she's um, you know, she's a strong woman. If you I don't know if you saw the ABC special that uh, Diane Sawyer did, which was really a remarkable show. I thought she did a great job, Diane. But, uh, you know, Jay on that show said um, she tries to think about each day. While Randy was alive, they tried to make the most of each day. I mean, they would, they would cry. They were not superhumans. They would, they would cry at night at 4 in the morning and fall back asleep and wake up and cry again at 5. And then they would say, we've got to do what we can to make the next day the best we can. And we have to give the kids breakfast in the morning. So let's get some sleep and let's get up and do it. And so now I think, you know, Randy's only been gone for, it'll be three weeks tomorrow. So it's hard. She's still adjusting, but she, she's strong and she'll be, she'll, be, she'll be okay. Yeah, and I think that the other thing is, you know, and I didn't really say this at the beginning, but I think this is another thing that he says, just follow your dreams. That's another thing that he, oh, that, uh, that he did, I think, throughout his whole life, following his dreams. Yeah, his uh, talk was about uh, following your childhood, finding and following your childhood dreams. So uh, he started talking about his own nerdy dreams. I mean, he was a computer science professor. He was a nerd. He wanted to be uh, Captain Kirk. He wanted to float in zero gravity. And he sort of walked people through how he, how he did those things. And then he talked about enabling the dreams of others, he said, which is even more, more rewarding than, than finding your own dreams. And so uh, it makes us all think about, well, what would we do? What, what did we want to do when we were kids, and where are we now? And you know, Randy even said things like, you know, let your kids paint on their bedroom walls like, like his mother let him. He put the quadratic equation in weird pictures, and she let him do it. She let him be creative. He said as a favor to him, if your kids want to paint, let him do it. And so scores of people sent emails saying their kids are painting on their bedroom walls. And <laughs> Randy was amused by that because he said, well, they're all taking me literally. I meant just let them be creative. If they want to cut the bushes out front into a funny design they can do that i mean whatever turns them on but well i have to tell you jeffrey i took him literally i did it <laughs> and i felt justified in doing it of course now i have a filmmaker an actor and a drummer uh <laughs> for, your, for your three kids yes uh, and, I, and you let them paint their walls or what i let them paint the walls and i let them mush the food on the high chair and throw it on the floor oh and, great well, yeah great. i mean i I'm, it's really wonderful because i'm getting emails literally from all over the world the books in 35 languages and the and the lecture has been viewed by tens of millions and to hear that you know people in foreign countries and are letting kids paint on their walls it's, it's cool yeah it is it's a great it's a great well first of all i want everybody i think i don't even have to say this you can buy the at bookstores everywhere the last lecture um randy pausch with jeffrey zaslow who we've been talking to this morning a columnist for the wall street journal great having you on the show this morning well thank you kathy Thank you. Right, Have a good day. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah. So, what do you think, Lauren? That's. Like, I mean, this book is like incredible. I. You already. You read it, right? I did, and I. You know what I love is that what a legacy to his kids. That, I mean, they're going to really know him through that book. That's because that two-year-old won't really know him. You know. Well, that's what he said in the book. He talks about it's kind of a heartbreaker um, that his youngest is the baby. I think she's just like eighteen months or whatever won't know him. Anyway, we're going to take a short break and Lauren and I will be back. You're listening to Voice America Women's Network. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone.
talking about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Join Gina Alzade every Wednesday for Journey with Gina. This program explores the modern-day issues that affect the body, mind, and spirit, aiming to help you gain and use critical life skills to overcome your challenges with grace and ease. Aim to come into your own power and make a difference in your life and the lives of those around you. Manage your stress and life transitions and create balance and harmony in your life. Journey with Gina is heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. I have a dream. Over there, over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, (laughs) she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Mm Uh-huh. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at pornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Great guests, great stories, great listening. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome to Catherine Zox Show. With my co-host Lauren Beller. Hey, Lauren. Our next guest is ready to go, and uh, our next guest is Mary Ellen Geist. She is author of Measure of the Heart: A Father's Alzheimer's, A Daughter's Return. And uh, Mary Ellen was the afternoon anchor at WCBS Radio in New York, the flagship station of CBS Radio and CBS News. She's been the morning anchor at KGO Radio Station in San Francisco, and now she lives in northern Michigan. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Mary Ellen. It is good to be with you. Great to have you. I ju- your book is fabulous, I have to say. I, I just Thank fit- you. I'm sitting on Cape Cod, that's where, and that's where I'm doing the show from, and uh, that's where I read the book. But uh, it's, it's very inspiring. It's... Um, well, let's start with, uh, it's a memoir, um, and it's a book for, it's a book for caregivers, uh, not, you know, it's, it's about Alzheimer's, but it's also about uh, not just those who have Alzheimer's, but those who care for, for, for family members and loved ones with Alzheimer's. So um, tell us, start, tell us the story. Why did you decide to go back when your father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's to take care of him? Well, you know, it isn't a book just for caregivers and people taking care of people with Alzheimer's because I think what I did, I mean, you can call it a midlife crisis, you can call it a search for meaning, but I mean, I think in our 40s, 50s, 
whatever. Yeah. A lot of us. What, I'm whatever, so yeah, watch it. whatever. <laughs> I don't want to say specifically my age yeah. right now, but no, okay. I, I really don't care about it that much at yeah. the same age. But I think a lot of us go through a reassessment of our life. We're looking for meaning. Some people I know, you know, are working for Habitat for Humanity or, you know, they're going overseas, they're working with Doctors Without Borders, they're doing philanthropic kind of things. And I sort of put my parents on that bucket list and I took this big risk and I left my job to come home. And that's one thing I want to say is I think this book is also for anybody who says, you know what, I want to do this thing. It doesn't fit in the normal, traditional standard things. You know, I'm getting, I got off the hamster wheel. I was supposed to, you know, single career gal. I wasn't married. You know, I had a, you know, a blossoming career. And I wasn't supposed to do this, I suppose, traditionally. I was supposed to stay there, collect, you know, 401k, do the right thing. And I just said, you know what, I'm getting off. I'm going to take this risk because I really wanted to come home and help my parents, both my mother and my father were suffering. I think a lot of people don't realize the dangerous and precarious health position that caregivers are in. And there are a lot of us out there, but my mother was really suffering, as well as my father, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 1994. And I just said, you know what, the mind-blowing thing I can do is just really do what I want to do, which is quit my job and come home to help my parents. And I had no, I had an entrance strategy. I had no exit strategy. I had no idea what would happen. And this book just happened as a kind of therapy in the night. I had no idea. I was just writing my feelings in the night because my life had changed so incredibly. And what I got out of this was an incredible gift, the gift of this this book, which I feel like my father actually reached through his Alzheimer's to help me write. Because, you know, it's so personal. It's such an intimate story. And you write it. And it, I mean, intimate, I guess, is the word that when I was reading the book that I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's not just, a, 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 you know, the story about it's your it's intimate. It, it really gets into the psyche of, of your dad, of your father, of you, of your mother, um, all the emotions. I just want to backtrack, though, because it took a lot of guts for you to leave that job. Most people are going to say, I mean, you didn't just leave a job, you know, in a 401k. But, I mean, you were a major personality. A, a, you know, a star, um, and to be able to just say goodbye to it, I, I mean, you're, that takes a special kind of person, I think, to be able to do that and then to, to go back home and to do what you did. Well, yeah, I think you, you probably know this as well as I do. A lot of us in radio, <laughs> our identities are yes. wrapped up in our careers, anybody in the media. I mean, I would go to parties and I'd introduce myself with the call letters after my name. I couldn't say my name without the call letters. <laughs> <laughs> my friends were, said it was obnoxious. And I really, I, I was one of those people who my career was everything. I would invite friends to come visit me in San Francisco. They'd arrive, I'd be gone. I'd be on a breaking news story, like in another country or another state. I didn't care. I mean, I always chose my career over my personal life. That's why people were shocked that I did this. But I really um, have just gained so much from it. But I, I want people to also realize that there is a kind of courage, and I don't say doing what I did, and I'm not saying I was that courageous, but I'm saying think outside the box, and I think especially with what's happening with the economy today, I think we are all looking at new ways of living and maybe even helping each other out, um, maybe even living in communal situations is going to happen in the future as we face the growing mounting costs of nursing homes, and I really think we've got to look at a new way of living, and also, I'm just encouraging people to follow their hearts and, and do what they really want to do with their lives. Yeah, which is exactly what you did. I mean, you were talking about the, what it's been two and a half, your father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was 10 years ago? It was 1994, he's actually had it for 14 years, and it's amazing he's still with us. Um, 
So I have been home three and a half years helping my mother. She had taken care of him alone for 10 years, and it was really, really difficult. Um, When I left, what I wanted to say, too, is that the book, it grew out of me just writing in the night, but WCBS Radio, they were so great. I mean, I was a wreck. I knew my mother's and father's lives were declining. I felt that I had the power to, I mean, maybe I was just the designated daughter. I've talked to a lot of women who just say, I don't know, I'm just the designated daughter. I can't tell you why. Um, It isn't always a single career gal either. There's always sort of one in the family who feels responsible, who wants to help in a situation like this. But when I left, I, I will never forget my boss, Chris Quimby, the program director who hired me, she could have been extremely angry that I was leaving after they invested in me. You know, I travel across the country to come and start this new afternoon anchor. They promoted me. Yeah, I mean, you're their star, and you're saying bye. <laughs> I'm saying bye. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that was, that was one of the hardest things to do was to walk into her office and tell her that I had decided to come and help my father. And at first you feel like a loser, and you feel like a failure. And, of course, now I feel exactly the opposite. But she was so great to me, and she said, you know what? I understand. You know, I under- she, had a, she has a really big heart, and she understands about family. And she said, would you be willing to write about this on our WCBS blog? And they had just started a thing called the Sandwich Generation, which was probably more appealing to people that have jobs and kids, plus they're taking care of their aging parents. But she said, you know, you've got your own kind of sandwich going on. Maybe it's an open-faced sandwich. But um, can you write about this? And at first, you know what? I said, no, no, it's too personal. Well, right when I got home, I started writing in the night, and it was so helpful to me. And I said, you know what, why don't we just try a couple journal pieces on the WCBS website? So we put it on the CBS News website. And you know what's funny is after all that I've covered, you know, I covered Princess Diana in London for ABC News. I covered O.J. Simpson for ABC News and KGL Radio. I covered the L.A. riots. You know what's funny is I got more response to quitting my job, to coming home to help my father than any story I've ever covered. And hundreds of people, I mean, it crashed my computer. And I realized that there were a lot of people out there like me, and I didn't even know till I came home that there are 50 million caregivers in the U.S., and about 10 million of them are taking care of someone with Alzheimer's or dementia. And, you know, as a social worker, I, I thought I knew uh, I thought I knew a lot about Alzheimer's, but in reading your book, there were so many things that uh, uh, that I learned from it, just, in, you know, in the process of caring for somebody with Alzheimer's, which I did not realize. I mean, just little things like, I mean, I, I want to bring this one up, and, you know, you were talking about, well, there's always the issue of, like, wanting to maintain your loved one, the dignity, and that's so very difficult to do, I mean, because people start to, you know, as you talk about talking to your dad like he's a child, and he's not a child, he was this very accomplished man, very successful successful in business and went to the University of Michigan and all of those kinds of things. And then seeing him being treated like a child by the nursing staff, by doctors, I mean, that's... But one of the things... Talk about the food thing, because I think that was really interesting, which I didn't realize. You know, it's difficult sometimes to get... um, when you have Alzheimer's, to get um, the person to eat. And one of the things you talk about in the book, which I thought was very interesting about the food in terms of, like... You have to have a special balance of the color and the amount and the style so that the person will eat. That's true. And, you know, but I want, I'm glad you brought that up because there are so many great books out there. I mean, the 36-hour day is really great for someone who has just found out that their loved one has Alzheimer's, if you're just going down this road. But Learning to Speak Alzheimer's by Joanne Koenig-Kost, that's where I really learned so much about how to help my father eat better because when I came home and here's what's interesting too is every Alzheimer's patient is completely different than another one so everybody's different but one thing we do know is that eyesight is affected and also just a sense of depth perception 
definitely affected, especially in the middle and late stages of Alzheimer's. And this has an impact on their eating because all of a sudden my father didn't want to eat at all. And we just thought it was because he felt so badly. He would look at his plate and he would get very upset. And what I didn't know till I read Joanne Koenig Koss' book, Learning to Speak Alzheimer's, that he was looking at his plate and being unable to discern what was on there. And uh, Joanne Koenig Koss tells this great story of going into a nursing home. And the nursing home um, said, you know, it's so weird. None of the Alzheimer's patients will eat fish. None of them like fish. So we don't serve fish anymore. And she said, well, wait a minute. She asked them about it. And they said, yes, they serve fish on Friday. And they won't eat any of it. And she said, what do you serve it with? And they said, with cauliflower. And something else white. Oh, mashed potatoes on a white plate. Well, they white on white on white. The food. (laughs) They could not see the food. So first of all, she said, you've got to have different colored foods on there. This will really help them. They can then delineate. But the other thing is you shouldn't load up a plate with a whole bunch of different colored things and things that they can't delineate. What is this? What is that? It's too confusing. And my father would just look at his plate and say, it's too much. It's too much. He refused to eat. Well, then we sort of also followed her advice about finger foods because why, why do we have to give people with Alzheimer's, you know, a complicated dish that you have to cut with a knife and a fork and is very difficult, or like spaghetti, very difficult. You know, just give finger food, simple things, about three things on a plate. It made all the difference in the world for my father. Yeah, I mean, those are the practical kinds of things. I think the other thing that you also talk about in the book, which is really important, I think for anybody who is suffering from a long-term illness, is change your standards. I think this is kind of what you're, you know, describing now, but um, you have to alter your standards. And um, I think that's a really important point. It's okay to, you know, eat with your fingers. I mean, there were lots of different examples that you uh, changed or altered your standards in in the course of the day with your dad. Well, and I think to include... One of the things we wanted to accomplish, my mother and I, is to really keep him going as long as he could and keep him in this world. Unfortunately, you know, this world, when you go into society, people don't like to see people doing things the way a lot of Alzheimer's people do them. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons you stay home. But in the house... We're like, why? It's okay if things are a little messier than they normally would be. It's okay if when you have him help you cut up vegetables and help you with cooking, they're not going to be all even and beautiful. It's okay if, I mean, I have actually a recipe for what I call Alzheimer's chicken chicken in there. Because I'm like, let him chop the celery whatever way he wants to. You know, I think those are the things that those daily rituals and routines are very frustrating with people with us if you if you have to maintain a perfection standard you've got to change it one of the things i did as i said you know what are the things he can do with me that were nothing you know nothing will burn <laughs> nothing will you know like involving flames or something that could break and i said you know what he can hang up clothes with me so in my closet all my dresses all my pants they're all hung up upside down <laughs> and i just let my dad do it and i sort of like it when i look in my closet because it's a sign that my dad helped me do that and um, yes. he loves to vacuum now, he's going to miss some corners. He's not going to see okay. a lot of we'll things, and I'm going to have to go back and vacuum again after he vacuums, but he loves to vacuum, so let him We're going to take a short break. We're going to be right back, and don't go away, because we have Mary Ellen Geist, author of Measure of the Heart, A Father's Alzheimer's, A Daughter's Return, on Voice America Women's Network with Captain Boxer, social worker with a microphone. Radio that talks with you, not at you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. 
We all have issues. Parenting, addictions, disorders, anxiety, stress. How do we expand on what's working and improve what's not? Let Quantum Leaps with Beth Wilson bring you a high-energy approach to personal growth and creative life change. Listen every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Women's Channel. Let Beth bring you back to sanity with a blend of humor and perspective so you can make the change you need. Quantum Leaps with Beth Wilson, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, here on Voice America Women's Channel. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. There you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Are the days passing by faster than you can believe? Do your kids, job, pets, family, errands, and life demands leave no time left for you? Listen to Life Tune-Ups with Lauren Slocum each week. You can have it all, balance it, and truly enjoy your life. Be ready to have fun, laugh, and learn from celebrities and everyday heroes. We don't need an entire life overhaul, just a little bit of tweaking for our lives to be what we want. Life Tune-Ups with Lauren Slocum, every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Women's Network. Your life is waiting for you. Finally, radio that has real depth. Voice America Women's Radio Network. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. I'm Catherine Zox on Voice America Women's Network. I'm Catherine Zox. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. I'm your social worker with the microphone with my co-host, Lauren Beller, and my guest, Mary Ellen Geist, author of Measure of the Heart, A Father's Alzheimer's, A Daughter's Return. So, Mary Ellen, we were talking about the clothes before we took the break, how you let your dad, well, part of being independent is to do, to share in doing the things around the house, which you did, which you do, um, hanging clothes upside down in your closet and all those kinds of things. But another thing I want to, you talk about, music and how the impact of music on your father and his life and and how it's allowed him to really still stay connected because talk to us about that it's the way we communicate now he really can't converse at this point he really doesn't know the names of any objects um what he does know is the baritone part and the words to almost every song he has ever sung. And when I came home, I was pretty sure that he was a rare case, that it was pretty amazing that after 10 years of having Alzheimer's, he could sing all the songs he'd ever sung. He really has identity, and his emotions, I think, were very attached to music from the time he was a little boy. And he sang with the University of Michigan Glee Club, and he then was in a barbershop quartet, and then he was in a 12-man a cappella singing group. And also, my family sang together. So my two sisters, Alison Libby, my mother, Rosemary, and I, and my father, performed around the Detroit area. And I think there are times, even though he was president of an industrial distribution firm, he was a successful CEO, 
and he was a sports enthusiast, and he plays tennis and everything, but his identity, I think, was wrapped up with music. So it is the thing that is left, and it is the way that I communicate with him. And even when I'm not with him, I call him on the phone, and I go, Dad, hi, you ready? And I start Moon River or um, this hymn we do together, Now the Day is Over, and then we do Night and Day by Cole Porter, and then we go on to uh, This Will Be My Shining Hour, and then we burst into We Small Hours of the Morning by Frank Sinatra. We have this routine, and it, <laughs> it stimulates his brain. I can see him engaging. And his eyes sort of perk up, and he actually stands up straighter when he sings. And I was so amazed by this that I, I emailed Dr. Oliver Sacks, whose work I had admired. I'd read a lot of his books, and I, and I thought he might be doing some research on music and the brain. And it just happened that he was writing a book about music and the brain at the time that I wrote him about my father, and he asked us to come to New York. We met him, and he really helped me as I went down this road with my father and to just try to understand more about how music actually opens up sort of channels in the brain, a new way to communicate. And I wish that every every nursing home and every residential facility had music therapists to work with the elderly and to work with people who have Alzheimer's. So do they think from a scientific point of view that, that there's something special about, I mean, you, two things you mentioned, well, music has been part of your father's life for so long. It's been embedded in his brain all his life. So yes. maybe the stuff that's been there the longest stays there, the, you know, is, is, you're able to recall better. But is there really something special about, you know, the, the part of the brain that reacts to music is not affected by the, um, what is amyloid? Is that a, the... Uh, Beta amyloid, yes. Yeah. The plaque. The plaque. Of the Alzheimer's. Stuff. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting? The I read his book, Musicophilia, in which my, he interviews my father, and he talks about my father and many other people who have these amazing attachments to music that seem to supersede and overcome brain diseases. It is incredible, the power of music, and I interviewed a lot of people for the book about music, but it was funny. Before I knew I was going to do this interview with you, I, I actually emailed Dr. Sachs, and I said, okay, do you know anything new about this, and is there any new way? I said, I read your book over, you know, and before I start talking about my book and before I start talking about my father again on this tour, you know, what can you tell me? And then they, he and his assistant, Kate, and Oliver both wrote me back, and they said, we still don't know why. It's like some sort of magic. I mean, I think it's an emotional, spiritual connection to music. And there is really, I mean, memory is still a mystery to scientists. And the power of music is still a mystery. I mean, we know that, I mean, I tell one story in the book about a music therapist that goes onto a floor where people were basically comatose. People thought they could not speak, these people. Their eyes were closed. She just started singing, Let Me Call You Sweetheart. Their eyes opened. They started mouthing these words, and she opened a door then. What they call it, one of the interviews as well in um, Musicophilia by Dr. Oliver Sacks, a music therapist calls it a can opener into the brain. I mean, that you open up some sort of floodgate is open. The log jam is open, and sometimes people actually can start speaking after you get them to start singing. It's an amazing story. I guess we maybe don't have to know why. We just have to know that we can, that mm-hmm. you can do it, that it does it. Um, here's another thing that I, I think that I hadn't really thought about this. This is kind of like you know, um, a different topic. But 
your dad needed knee replacement surgery. And, and I never really thought about when you have surgery and you have Alzheimer's and, and uh, making the decision to do that kind of major surgery was something that you and the family had to decide whether to do it, whether he could handle it. Because uh, that's tough even if you are, uh, you know, if, if you're under normal circumstances. And, but these are decisions that families have to make every day. So tell us, how did you eventually decided to do it, but um, it wasn't an easy decision. Actually, it was hell. <laughs> and I'm not well, going I to mince words. Exactly. It was hell, okay. <laughs> um, having an Alzheimer's patient in a hospital, I just think no matter how wonderful the people in the hospital are, it's really awful. It's the most disorienting thing. And um, I would urge anybody who has someone with Alzheimer's going to the hospital, I mean, talk to everybody before he goes in or he or she goes in. Make sure everyone knows that that person has Alzheimer's. I mean, so many things can go wrong unless you have a patient advocate or a family member with that person at all times. And tell us what went wrong, because there were a couple incidences there that were really scary if you hadn't been there. Absolutely. Um, One of them was, I mean, he just had knee replacement surgery, first of all. The hell began before we went in because we're saying, Dad, we're going into the hospital to have surgery. What? You know, you tell him, you have to repeat over and over again. Of course, there's no memory. You're trying to explain. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? So he has no idea why this is going on. Then, of course, you have the fear of anesthetics have an impact on anyone that is elderly in a different way than when they're younger. But when you have Alzheimer's, sometimes people say the disorientation can last like forever. Sometimes people go to the hospital and it changes them forever. Not only just the physical trauma they go through, but the drugs. And so we were extremely worried about all that. So here you have this guy with Alzheimer's who's getting both his knees replaced, who doesn't understand why his knees are being replaced or what's going on. So he's an aesthetic. And of course, you can't, if someone asks him, does he feel pain? He doesn't really know how to answer that. So we had all sorts of problems with the fact that they have some sort of rule in some hospitals that you have to ask for painkillers before you can get them. Well, he doesn't know how to ask for painkillers. He doesn't know how to ask for medication. So unless we were there, he couldn't get it at the beginning until we kind of raised our own hell. And um, the other thing was after, so he's in the bed after the surgery, has no idea what's going on or where he is. In the middle of the night, nurses come in, flick on the lights, there's chaos all around him. The fright, most frightening thing was when he was taken down for an x-ray and the person in the x-ray unit didn't know he had Alzheimer's and said, why don't you stand up? <laughs> and that would have destroyed all the work that we'd done in the surgery. So, I mean, the communication one to the other, I wish you could just somehow find a way that everyone in hospital knows that a person has Alzheimer's. And if you do, I mean, it, it, you know, really, as I'm listening to you and reading the book, you really need someone, if, if you do have uh, one of your have a loved one who is having surgery, I think you really need somebody there 24 hours a day, even if the hospital is informed, even if they do know. You get new people on staff all the time. You don't know who's going to be there. I mean, in, in some sense, don't you really need a family member or friend to be there 24 hours Absolutely. a day? Absolutely. I yeah. think that is what, if you have someone with Alzheimer's going, if you possibly can, I mean, see, this is a problem. Someone who has a full-time job, I don't know how they do it, but if you can possibly have family members with that person at all time, it will make all the difference in the world. And another issue which keeps coming up, and you mentioned this at the beginning when we started talking, um, and the, the whole caregiver issue, because that is a huge issue, and your mother was is so dedicated, and you know, and the fear of leaving, I mean, not wanting to leave him, not wanting to leave him with somebody else, with a stranger, and yet... Uh, the, care, the person who's caring for the, the, the person who is, is ill needs to take care of themselves or they become as sick or sicker than the, the person they started caring for. That's true. 63% of caregivers have a higher risk of dying than non-caregivers. And it's a strange thing to watch, but it's one of the reasons I came home is that my mother actually, when she was ill, she wouldn't go to the doctor. When she needed things 
for herself, she wouldn't do that. I mean, she, she would just, it's a kind of martyr mode that perhaps women of my generation don't know as much about, but it's that total giving over for someone else. And I, of course, had not experienced that. But I think that she just was totally invested in keeping my father alive, keeping him in this world, keeping him as lucid as possible, giving him everything, and her own needs went by the wayside. And I just think that people need to know how many caregivers out there are in a precarious position. Yeah. And, and they, they just need forget the support, their own and they needs. need to be able to have someone say it's okay to leave, it's okay to take care of yourself. I'm, I was identifying as I was reading your book because my father died of congestive heart failure, and the last two years, uh, my mother looked as sick as he did. I yeah. mean, she, she looked, and I didn't realize it until after he died, and she was able to get herself together. And I look at the pictures, and I think, oh my, who was the sick one? Right. Well, one of the big reasons I came home is I want my mother to have another chapter in her life, and I hope she gets to have one. Yeah, I, I think she's... So you're still out in Michigan. I am. And uh, actually, we put my father in an institution in January because we both got so exhausted. So that was three years into it, and I went on... I was going to go on with my life, and I started doing some freelance reporting and uh, for a public radio station, and I was writing articles for magazines, and we were sort of moving on. We were trying to, but we absolutely couldn't, and it didn't work for us. So we just took him out. So we're back to being a caregiving team again and taking care of my father. And yet, you know what? We're very glad to have him home again. Yeah, that's great. What a story. And I, and I want to make sure listeners, obviously, they can buy the book at bookstores everywhere, Barnes & Noble, online. Um, and um, Mary Ellen, do you have a website that we can go to? MaryellenGeist.com. MaryellenGeist.com, Measure of the Heart, A Father's Alzheimer's, A Daughter's Return. Fantastic book. And thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's great having you. Great story. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful book. And um, everyone should read it. Any, Lauren? Yes, I'm it? here. <laughs> I never know. I hear uh, you know, responding. Um, yeah, we only have a, a couple of minutes left. We have actually just one minute left, and, and Lauren and I are going to be back, but I want to talk about the book and Mary Ellen, because like, she's like this very, she's an incredible person. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be able to do what she did, first of all, as she said, to leave her this like fantastic job, um, and then write this book that's, uh, I, I read it, it's one of those page turners, you read it in a day or overnight, it's really, really good. Anyway, we are going to take a short break, and we will be back on Voice America Women's Network. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, with my co-host, Lauren Beller. Don't go away. We don't beat you over the head with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America Women's Radio Network. Mom? Dad? How long should I wait for you? Mom? If I'm at soccer practice. What if something happens? Will you come get me? Should I stay where I am and wait for you? Or go to Grandma's house since it's closer? Should I only pick a place for me? There's no reason not to have a plan in case of a terrorist attack. Mom, if you're not home, should we go to the neighbor's house? How do we keep in touch with each other if the phones don't work? Should I be worried how we all get home? And some extremely good reasons why you should. Can you tell me? Everybody should have a plan. Take five minutes to talk about where you'll meet and how you'll get in touch with each other in an emergency. For other things you can do to be prepared, visit www.ready.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council.
comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart, but I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. My music track, track, track from my modem jack, jack, jack plays MP3s, threes, threes, and I download fast, fast, fast. I read the bits, bits, bits on the microchips, chips, chips, and I burnt, burnt, burnt all my favorite hits, hits, hits. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in technology, but parents can help keep them updated. Go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. We don't beat you over the head with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Lauren Miller and Catherine Dodds on Voice America Women's Network. Uh, Lauren, I, I know you're with me now. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> hey, what do you think about John Edwards? Oh, man. Come on, tell You're me. switching gears on me. No, no, actually, it's all about loyalty and, <laughs> and, and, and uh, family. And I was so surprised. I was so surprised. I did not expect that from him. You didn't? You no. were shocked? I was. I was honest, so surprised. Really, honest to God, you were shocked. You didn't think he was capable of... of I think everybody is capable of it, yeah. but I just, you know, all that he had been through with his wife and the cancer, and he just seemed so... You know, supportive, and not that he's not being supportive. I just, I mean, I'm surprised that he got sucked into this. this into it is probably the right word, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this girl is trouble, trouble, you know. Well, I can't believe, I mean, she had a thing for him, it sounded like, and she really, like, it sounds like she really pursued him, so yeah. I don't know. And men are very vulnerable, I think, as uh, you know, he's, uh, and as he said, he was narcissistic. He got egotistical. I was, well, I'm really glad yeah. to hear that he admitted it all. Like, like he admitted the, the ego part of it, the, narciss- the narcissism part of it. I'm glad to hear that he admitted it and that how human he really is. Well, I mean, he's definitely human. I'm not sure that I buy that. I think it's a little bit of a, like, you know, I, it's, I kind of mea culpa kind of thing. And, you know, I, I don't feel sorry for him. I think he made Oh, no, I don't feel sorry for him at all. Yeah. I'm surprised. I think, yeah. I mean, Marie Dowd, you know, in the New York Times, she wrote this really, it was, I thought it was really kind of on target. She said, you know, he said that he, he had the affair, and I'm not judging him, but he had the affair when uh, his wife was in remission. So she said he, <laughs> he it was like trying to justify that he was on, oncologically uh, correct, you know, that he had the affair, affair at the right time. Because, oh, jeez. No, seriously, I guess he must have said that. I didn't see it, but I have a feeling that he's kind of, uh, his career at this point, or his political career, um, it is kind of down the tubes. Uh, I think that, yeah, he's, um, I, don't know. I think that he was, po- there was opportunity for him potentially to have some decent position, but I'm not sure that they're, no one's going to pull that off. Steph, if we were your husband, what would you do? 
Say that again? If it were your husband. Oh, so you know, that is such a good question. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know. I know so many people that, and I don't know them personally, but I know, so, even we had someone on the show recently that said, you know, it's, it's something that you work through, and I'm not sure I could do it. Yeah, I'm not sure what I would do either. I mean, or I would get to the point. I, 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 sort of knowing my own personality, I probably wouldn't care. I mean, I have my own. I mean, if I, you know, had a serious illness, terminal illness, I'd be thinking about myself. Probably, I would just. I, I, I obviously the relationship would lose something, but I don't even know that I would do anything about it. Yeah, you know, that's one of the reasons I admire Hillary because I just didn't, they seem like they're better than ever, that particular couple. You know, you yes. see them at night, who knows what's true or not. Cameras do a good, you know, from a distance with a camera, you can do a lot. But, but um, I, do Hillary, a, yeah, I just admire Hillary. her. What? Go ahead, I'm sorry. That was say it. I just was going to say, I admire that she's stuck with the situation and I believe works through it, both her issues and his issues. Well, yeah, she had loftier things she was getting on to. She was going. She was going to run for president. Of the United yeah, and she States, didn't. So. She didn't let that li- quote little thing, you know, whatever that was. We know what that little thing is. <laughs> <laughs> you are going to say that thing. It can be little or big. It doesn't make but any she difference. Didn't, she didn't make it a big. I'm sure it's a big thing. How could it not <laughs> yeah, be? And at the really, same time, yeah, she didn't, reputation is a big thing. Yeah, <laughs> but she <laughs> didn't let it get in the way of, as you said, her loftier vision and dreams for herself. That's why Hillary should have been president. See, she doesn't have one of those little things. Exactly. Exactly. And, not, and she's postmenopausal, and you know she's strictly business. She doesn't have to get into all that stuff. I mean, that's so. She would have been a, a really good candidate, I think, because um, because she. Th- it's so funny because she doesn't have a little thing. She doesn't have a little thing. She doesn't have a big thing. She, <laughs> she's got a big brain, is what she has. That's but, what happens when you get over your little thing. Your brain yeah, starts right. working better. <laughs> <laughs> they all do it, yeah. Um, well, I, I really think Elliot Spitzer, governor of New York, former governor of New York State, who was allegedly sleeping with prostitutes, uh, to me that would bother me less than than um, my husband having an affair with a younger woman. Um, and potentially having a baby with her. And potentially having a baby. And I, I mean, come on, that's a pretty big deal. Exactly. I see that, that, that puts it into a whole different realm. And I'm not going to say it on the air, but I really because I don't want to get in trouble, but I have some strong feelings about that and what they're trying to kind of, what do you call, you know, the the slant or the, uh, what's the word, you know, when you put the, put a, put a slant on what you're trying to say. What is it when you try to manipulate the audience? Uh, oh, you think that... Spin. spin the spin. Uh, they're trying yeah. to spin. Who, I, who's trying to spin what? I just think the... The I don't know. I just think that the Edwards camp is trying to put a spin on it about who whether he's the father of the baby or not. And uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get into it, but I have my own theory. I I do too. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence that that speaks to that. So yeah. we'll see. I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of it. And not that it really matters. There's more important things to focus on, like Michael Phelps and the good things he's doing in the world. Oh, you want to get <laughs> into the sweets of the good stuff, the safe <laughs> topic. Michael Phelps, he's great. We've been watching him. My youngest son was, you know, as you know, big-time swimmer, captain. So he was here over the weekend, and it was great watching it with him. Yeah, my, and Michael Phelps, hey, he had his relationship with his mom. Oh, my God, I love the relationship. I too. I mean, mom is right there. She's the one who just was is his inspiration, his mentor, who he gives all the credit to. That's what I said to my boys. Like, you know, when you get out there and you start, you know, being famous, don't forget, 
don't forget you know who. Yeah, give mom all the credit. <laughs> I want credit. He um, does do that. But I also think that it's amazing how she gives credit to the, co- the coach when he was 11 years old for seeing the potential in him. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you have, and then, and, and then to follow up on it. We were talking about that. Like when you have a kid, you know, everybody thinks their kid is so great. It's, it's swimming or gymnastics or music. Exactly. But, How and, do you know? Because you do have the, I, you do, the, the coach, most of the time, or a good coach will sit down and tell you, you know, your kid is not just, you know, high school or even college swimming material. This kid there's something here. There's something here. I mean, you've got to you've got to work on it, but there is something here that sets them apart that makes it different. And they do that. I also have to know: Have you heard anything about his dad? That he's like not in the picture, right? No, I asked somebody: Did his uh, are they divorced or did his dad die? I, could, I can't tell. I haven't yeah. gotten. I can't get to my arms around the story. And what about these Chinese girls who are doing gymnastics? You know, they say they're sixteen. They're um, not sixteen. They're not. I mean. It, they're 13. I mean, to me, they look like they're 12 years old. I agree. 12 weeks? <laughs> 12 years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they I look, was going to say, some of them even look 8 and 9. I mean, They look very prepubescent. And yeah. I, I know the gymnasts, you know, you, when, you, when you start doing that stuff, your breasts get smaller and you don't have big boobs, but they don't really I have never them. have, and I didn't do that, so. Yeah. <laughs> I had huge <laughs> ones, but now I don't anymore. But, uh, no, but they look just, it's not just that, that they're flat-chested. They just, their whole, their heads, their necks, you know, just everything about them looks it's like tiny tiny yeah tiny, so tiny, how do yeah. they get by with that i mean i don't understand how the, the olympic committee doesn't i'm not sure either that was it did come up i saw it on the news but there, no one's making a thing of it because i think there's some issues that actually speak to that was a wise thing to do and there's also some issues that says that was not a wise thing to do it was sort of a they could i mean i guess you don't have to be a certain age but it's best if you're a certain age oh i thought you did i thought that was the rule that you had to be 16 or older oh, i don't think so I don't think so. I think you can you can let kids that are younger in. It's just that that's up to you. I, okay, then that I have to because all the American ones they were all they look sixteen to me. One of them I don't think was. Oh really? I don't think I think there was one that was younger than that. Okay, so then I guess it must not be a rule. It's just a what is it a? It's sort of like a standard once they've been a through standard. certain um, criteria and. Uh, you know, the classes, if you will, then, and I don't mean classes, but, you know, classes of performance, then I think that that means that they've met the criteria to go to the Olympics. Got it. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. I don't know if that's true. I'm making it all up, but okay. that's what I've always that's, thought. That's actually <laughs> a very comfortable topic, so we're not going to talk about sex anymore and affairs and stuff. We're talking and penises. About yeah, penises. You finally said the word. And breasts. We've talked <laughs> about it all today. <laughs> we did, and we <laughs> now have 30 seconds to say goodbye, so <laughs> have a great day. You have a great day, too. I'll speak to you next week. All right, great. You've been listening to Lauren Deller and Catherine Sockland, Voice America Women's Network. Thanks for joining us, ladies, this morning. And gentlemen, if you've been here, too, have a great day, and we'll see you next week.